Back in July, Preservation Maryland hosted the Old Line State Summit. Members of the preservation community from all across the state convened for a day at the beautiful and historic United States Naval Academy campus in Annapolis. Along with plenty of other talks, seminars, and presentations, Stephen and I talked about our experience working on the podcast, and that's not all. We had three guests join us for rapid-fire interviews, each with a different, exciting preservation project to share. Are you ready for some unscripted, off-the-dome preservation? Live from the Old Line State Summit, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a special live recording of PreserveCast. Can we hear the audience out there? Wow, that's exciting. All right, so we are sitting down with Preservation Maryland board member and Baltimore County resident, Diane Caslow. And Diane, I guess I kind of, we were going to have a set series of questions we're going to ask people, and I just gave away two of the answers, which is you represent the Preservation Maryland board and your name's Diane Caslow. But um, (laughs) how did you get into preservation? How How did you end up on the Preservation Maryland board? I have a day job. Uh, I work in healthcare. I've worked in healthcare for 35 years. I've always been interested in buildings. I think if I was not so bad in math, I might have been an architect, but I have a love of them. And over the last 20 years, so my job is actually as a strategic planner. So 20 years ago, I thought, well, what's going to be my next career? What kind of things am I interested in? And so I joined the National Trust for Preservation and kind of followed it along. I said once I was finished with my own professional career development and I've been president of my state chapter, I've been president of my national organization. So when I went off the board of that, I said I want to start exploring the things that I'm really interested in on the passion side. So I went to the annual meeting discovered that I knew the outgoing board chair, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm kind of interested in what you all do and the kinds of things that that you do. And he said, are you interested in being on the board? And I said, potentially. And the following year, I was able to join the board of Preservation Maryland and actually kind of convey some of my interest and passion into actually doing some of the work. At the same time, I went through the Washington, D.C. chapter of Urban Land Institute Leadership Program and discovered that there was an interesting crossover between preservation, the built environment, and health. So that's my area of interest that I kind of put together. So I've been on the board for a couple of years now and have thoroughly enjoyed now the transition with Nick becoming our executive director and expanding and exploring our minds in all sorts of different ways that you can think about preservation and convey your story. So that's you'd my a, story. You'd be an excellent host of this. I mean, that's I just, my story. I was just I'm enthralled. To <laughs> um, and actually, it's interesting you mentioned health because we have been toying with the idea and give everyone in this session a little bit of a look behind the curtain about next year's yep. conference being and summit being about the intersection of preservation and health um, and how to create healthy communities in, in a variety of different ways. 
So that's super exciting. And you're actually the vice president of one of the vice presidents of the board as well. So you are in a leadership role at Preservation Maryland. And you're working on a cool project right now as well, sort of a passion project, a personal project that is a lot of fun and is at the intersection of preservation and technology because it's being released monthly as a blog. Absolutely. Why don't you tell people what what it's about? 30-something years ago when my husband and I were newly married, had no money, and he was a total history buff and I was not. We packed a picnic lunch and we would wander around Maryland and he would show me all the historic markers and I would find places to eat and shop. And um, But I also loved buildings, so I loved the historic buildings, houses, and commercial districts and trying to see what people were doing in those areas. So now, fast forward 30 gazillion years later, the kids are gone out of the house on their own, supporting themselves. Uh, One's married, and the dog died, so it's time for us to do something else. Uh, He's rehabbing a boat. and Your husband, not the dog. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm rehabbing my husband. Um, And together, we are re-exploring Maryland. So I said, well, of course, I'm a planner by background, and I make everything a project. So I said, well, wouldn't it be fun to kind of re-explore Maryland? And why don't we visit each county? So we started that project last October through actually a friend event going to Mount Harmon Plantation in Cecil County. And we're like, where the heck is this place? What is it? Let's use Cecil County as the first example. And I started actually posting on Instagram, on Preservation Maryland's Instagram. And then I said, well, maybe I better call Nick and let him know what I'm doing. And I said, I'm going to write it up for myself and then, you know, and I'll share it with you. He said, this is great. This is great content. And we're going to put it on our blog. So I became a blogger um, (laughs) and have finished our eighth county. And again, like a good planner, I cut it into six jurisdictions with four per piece. And so we're crisscrossing the state and we combine his love of history, mine of preservation, our combination, and mostly him, of taking me off the beaten path and finding something interesting of each county that we've been in. We've gotten ourselves lost. We've gotten ourselves found. We've gotten ourselves found by other people. We wear our Preservation Maryland hats. We talk about who we are, what we're doing, and we do it all in, we do the county in a day so that anybody can actually do it. I mean, we get up early in the morning. We'll spend a couple hours or the, the day somewhere. So yeah, we've combined uh, some fun things and shop local and kind of support some of the people and organizations across the state of Maryland. And it's been an absolute blast. We're a third of the way through and we've been crisscrossing the state. It's pretty exciting and it's a pretty cool project and you can find it on preservationmaryland.org. And if you go there, you can look for, if you just put in 24 you will come across a whole series of these and pictures of them posing and a lot of chocolate and yes, um, there's always, beer. There's always food, alcohol, chocolate, and something unique that we have found yeah. in the county. Really essentially and, the greatest things about Maryland. <laughs> History, chocolate, and beer. Yes. Yeah. And the staff has been great because they're my executive editors and they've added <laughs> a lot of really cool things to it. Yeah, so we, we throw links in and all that kind of fun stuff. All right, so before we let you go and see if there's someone else out here in the audience that we can harangue into joining us for this live taping of PreserveCast and you can tell it's live because you heard a, a door close before. Um, <laughs> that's, cell phone that, was our, that was actually our Foley artist just uh, trying that out. <laughs> um, favorite Maryland building. We ah. ask everyone on PreserveCast this. 
That is too hard to answer. That's what they all say. So, we don't. So you... I'm not going to do my favorite. Okay. Least favorite. I will, do, I, I will do the first one that I encountered. Okay. In Maryland. So I moved to Maryland, which I considered a very southern state. I came from Boston and uh, moved here for a job at Hopkins. And so moved in into my friend's parents' house in Roland Park. So the first encounter I had was the Roland Park Shopping Center. Talk about reimagination and redesign and rethinking, keeping the original structure, but it's been inhabited by lots of different organizations and restaurants and, and things over the 30 plus years that I've been here. So I'd have to say that because that's the first one that I've encountered, it's a good example of the things that I'm interested in. I like that. I think that might be our first shopping center example, too. No. I don't think we've got... <laughs> we get a lot of state capitals. We get railroad stations. We've Annapolis, yeah. We get a lot of... And we've got Taco Bell now once, so... Food, um, fun, and shopping. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. A few weeks ago, Nick and I recorded this episode, sitting together along with the audience in a classroom at the United States Naval Academy. And I at least found the campus, the entirety of which is a national historic landmark, to be breathtaking. That's why we're about to talk a little bit about the history of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. The U.S. Navy's roots go back to 1775. But technically, it didn't exist in its present form until 1794, when after a brief period in which the Continental Navy was demobilized following the Revolutionary War, George Washington convinced Congress to authorize a permanent standing naval force. Still, the Navy of the time bore little resemblance to the institution it is today. When the U.S. entered the War of 1812, it consisted of barely a dozen ships. And notably for our purposes, the Navy didn't yet have its present-day home until 1845, when the U.S. Naval Academy was founded. The first serious request for a formal naval school came from President John Quincy Adams in 1825, but others in the federal government were not yet sold on the idea. Eventually, it was agreed upon that a system to educate sailors and midshipmen was necessary. So in 1842, an experimental teaching voyage for naval apprentices took place on the USS Summers. The brig had a simple mission, to deliver dispatches to another ship, the Vandalia, off the coast of Liberia. But a plot to take control of the ship and use it for piracy was uncovered while at sea, and three of the apprentices were hung for mutiny and buried at sea. To this day, it remains the only mutiny aboard a U.S. Navy ship that resulted in execution. After the disaster of the Somers Affair, as it came to be known, the need for a true, four-year naval academy became clear. And between its access to the sea through the Chesapeake Bay, the proximity to the nation's capital and the bustling port of Baltimore, and the relative quietness of the town itself, so as not to distract the sailors, Annapolis was chosen as the perfect location. Under Secretary of the Navy George Bancroft, the school quickly found its bearings and grew from 10 acres and 50 students in 1845 to 338 acres and 4,000 students in 1850. 
The Naval Academy campus is literally overflowing with fascinating architectural pieces. But some of the highlights include Bancroft Hall, which is the largest college dormitory building in the world, and currently houses all of the midshipmen, which is the rank assigned to all students who enroll at the Naval Academy. The original rotunda and two wings were built in the years between 1901 and 1906, and there have been several additions. Also of note is the Naval Academy Chapel. Construction started on the chapel in 1904, and it was consecrated in 1908. The massive copper dome of the chapel plays a role in many Naval Academy traditions. And beneath the chapel lies the crypt of John Paul Jones, the Revolutionary-era commander, often called the father of the American Navy. Over a several-year period, Jones's body was exhumed from his burial site in Paris, France, and reinterred in an ornate room beneath the Naval Academy Chapel, his coffin resting on several beautifully carved marble dolphins. There are countless historic tales and sights to be seen at the U.S. Naval Academy, but there's my ship coming. I'll let you guys get back to PreserveCast, live from the Old Line State Summit. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. All right, this is Nick Redding. We're back on PreserveCast, and we just left talking with Diane Caslow, and now we have another person in the hot seat here at our live recording of PreserveCast. So why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Susan Giddings. I'm from Pasadena, Maryland currently, and I am here today representing the Friends of the Rising Sun Inn. What is the Rising Sun Inn? The Rising Sun Inn is a historic tavern and museum located in Crownsville, uh, right on Generals Highway and Waterbury. And that was built around 1753. The new addition was built in 1784. And uh, we're open to the public and we tour. We've actually, um, our organization, it's owned by the Anne Arundale chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And they've owned it for 100 years. Wow. So why does it matter? What happened there? Why should Marylanders care about it? Maryland should care about our historic taverns. Taverns were really the center of a community. They were obviously a, a stopping point. Our tavern was a stagecoach stop. It served as a post office, served as a tax collector stop, a public meeting place, a way station for travelers. I think what's fun about our tavern is being located on General's Highway, the uh, part of the Washington-Rochambeau Revolutionary Route, and its kind of role in the cross-section of American history and the travels of General Washington and General Rochambeau down our our little road. So I guess I have to ask, did General Washington sleep there? Not that we know of. No. There is no documentation. We became a tavern. Did his horse eat there? I mean, is there anything? We, we, he, he definitely drove by, drove by, right? Rode yeah. by. We know we became a tavern in 1785. Uh-huh. Of course, that was after the revolution. Found some uh, interesting notices in the, um, the old Maryland Gazette suggesting it could have been a tavern earlier than that, but, you know, no proof yet. Okay. All right. That's pretty cool. So any projects going on at the Friends of the Rising Sun Tavern that people should know about? We have quite a few projects going on. One of the projects we're working on is our carriage house. It's not as old as the building. It's old in its own right. And uh, in fact, little factoid about it, Captain J. Lester Stone, a maritime artist who's got works at 
here at the academy and at the Capitol Rotunda and also at the uh, Department of Defense, actually lived at the inn in the late 60s and early 70s and used the carriage house as his art studio. Oh, wow. So, so it's, it's our own little mid-century modern history there as well. Well, it, it has its own history. Uh, yeah. It was built in the early 30s, but it, it was built to match the inn and it's in desperate need of renovation. What's the plan to use it for? We would like to restore it and then use it as a meeting space. Currently, we use the inn for gatherings and tours, and it would be nice to be able to do presentations and use the carriage house and then take people in to tour the inn if they're meeting and then touring and their chairs and in the way. So it would expand the use of the property. Great. Before we let you go, favorite Maryland building, and it can't be the Rising Sun Tavern because we've already heard too much about it. Oh. We always do that to everyone. I know. They come in with their favorite and we say, oh, that's great, but you can't use that one. Oh, let me see. Because it, it, it's, it's your favorite. Be- I know. It's become my love. Yeah. yeah. See, I haven't lived in Maryland that often. Well, it can long. be a favorite building. doesn't have to be Maryland, I guess. When um, passing through Springfield, Ohio, in southern Ohio, got to tour a, a Frank Lloyd Wright home, and I love the design, but the built-ins, the wood, and just... I'm I'm kind of a fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. Wow, that came out of left field. We wouldn't have expected the woman up here talking about the 18th century tavern to go after the prairie I, style. I but. love I love history. Actually, my current like personal favorite yeah. is mid-century modern. Like I would love to live in a mid-century modern home, but I love the old buildings. This has been a great interview. Thank Gone you. a lot of different directions. Thank you. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and we are here with our final interviewee on this special live recording of PreserveCast from the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. And why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Catherine Rogers Arthur, and I am Senior Curator and Director of Artistic Property for the State of Maryland at the Maryland State Archives and at the State House and the Governor's Mansion. Lots of pretty exciting places with loans across the state of Maryland. That sounds like really serious work and a big title. That's a really fun job, I have to say. So what is that? You come to work on a, on a Tuesday. What happens? Oh, it could be anything. And having come from being in a single position for the last 20 years, really heavily focused on Maryland's federal era, where I was director and curator at Homewood Museum, uh, what's been so exciting about this transition is the breadth of Maryland's history. Not that Baltimore from 1800 to 1825 isn't a really lovely and exciting time period to study, but it's really exciting that my day could include everything from a visit with Henrietta Maria at a conservator's, a painting from Van Dyke's studio from you know, the 1630s to next thing we know, we're looking at potential donations of Ray Pousset silver from 1905 that's got the Maryland State House in Ray Pousset on it. So it's sort of all over the place. How big is the collection that you're overseeing? Gosh, I'm not going to come up with the exact number. Are we talking tens of thousands of items? You know, I'm really only focused on the artistic property okay. end of things. So, you know, in the 6,000 kind of range. Wow. And it's really been exciting. And just I've been in this position since October, how many gift offers are coming in at a great rate. And there's a whole artistic property commission to kind of oversee and work like a museum's gallery community might. And there are legislated members of of that from Maryland's institutions, from the Walters to the Baltimore Museum of Art to Johns Hopkins University. 
from the Eastern Shore as well. So really helping advise us and I guess also ensuring that we're not collecting in competition with one another. Right, right. Any cool projects going on that we should know about? I think I know of one where you've got four new exciting paintings that just went up recently that are pretty neat. Well, it's actually six now. Six. So that okay. was really exciting See, and a wonderful partnership as well. What Nick is alluding to are these great portraits of the Calverts, the Lords Baltimore. And so Lords one through four are now hanging in the rotunda of the State House. And Lords 5 and 6 are hanging up the monumental stairwell on either side of the great white painting of George Washington resigning his commission, which we now know has a number of inaccuracies. And that's why we've depicted the old Senate chamber in a more accurate appearance. But those were a major project, which was very much underway at the time of my arrival. So I really Oh, my colleagues, uh, great debt of gratitude for keeping that going. But sort of day one, I was handed this folder like, here, you need to know about the Lords Baltimore. So the push was to get them hung prior to the beginning of legislative session. Which is no small task. These are not small portraits. No, they're about 200 pounds a piece. And what was really exciting for me was in sort of the investigations that really do relate to preservation going into the hanging of these these paintings because you know the state house is overseen by the state house trust which is sort of a consortium that includes Maryland Historical Trust, Maryland State Department of General Services and then artistic property is also involved and some other key players. So these paintings had all been restored. It totally was a herding cats kind of moment where the frames were at one conservators, the paintings were at another conservators, digital high resolution scanning of them get the frames and the paintings back together, and then get them up on the walls. And they hang over the doorways into the 18th century rooms of the Maryland State House. So because of the 18th century brickwork, uh, we ended up having to do this investigation because we wanted to make sure that the anchors on which they hang were inserted into mortar joints and not into really porous 18th century brick. So it's really fun kind of reconnecting with some of the craftsmen, preservation masons that I'd worked with before and working with people from DGS and MHT to really, really look out for this very important building. And so far, so good. They're still up. Yes, they're still yeah, hanging. Okay, good. Good. All right. It's safe to walk under. Yes. That's pretty cool. And I've had the chance to see them and they are really just magnificent and big and they're fun to look at. So Thank if you, you haven't seen them yet, make they're sure. They're pretty breathtaking. Yeah, they really are. All right. So before we let you go, favorite building can't be the State House because you spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Well, my old favorite building was Homewood, as I think you know. I'll always love Homewood. Uh, it's the 1801 Country House of Charles Carroll Jr., the only son of one of the four Maryland signers of the Declaration of Independence. But it really, it doesn't have to be grand architecture for me to love it. And as a child, I really, I fell in love with simple things like my grandfather's very simple mid-19th century farmhouse. So I love it all and just glad to be part of it. Vernacular rocks. Absolutely. Catherine, thank you for joining us here on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick. There you go. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. 
Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>